0: This is from Mark 1537 to168. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, "Surely this man was the Son of God." Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene. Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then. He rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early, on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter... He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, is that it? Here we are, Easter Sunday evening. And at the end of Mark's gospel, the climax of this amazing story about Jesus Christ, and Mark ends it with some hysterical women fleeing in fear and saying nothing. Listen to how Matthew finishes the story. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Jesus suddenly met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Well, that's better, isn't it? But with Mark, no joy, no reporting, no Jesus. And so you can see why some people have said, well, we can't have this. And they've wrote what they felt is a much better ending, and it's there in the church Bibles in italics. That's the champagne-popping, victorious, triumphant ending that we want and we feel we need. But it's not the ending Mark wrote. That's made clear also in our Bibles where it says the earlier manuscripts and other, some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 to 20. Now, maybe Mark did write a longer ending, but this is what we've got, and it's typical Mark. It's concise and dramatic and short. But this evening, imagine it could have been shorter. Imagine the story ended at verse 3. They asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Because that's how all the other Jewish messianic movements have ended. There were dozens of them before and after Jesus, and the Romans suppressed them all, and they violently killed all of the leaders, and their followers either gave up or they followed someone else. They all collapsed apart from this one which exploded into life and went global. Why? Because his followers claimed that he came back from the dead, that he physically rose again. And what's amazing about Mark's account is not that it ends at verse 8, but that it doesn't end at verse 3. And in those final five verses, Mark packs a punch. This young man, an angel, in verses 6 and 7, explains what has happened and its significance. And his message has changed lives in this room, and in this city, and in this world. And it continues to change lives. It's the most terrifying and exciting news you will ever hear. And it all flows from those three words, He has risen. So what does Mark want us to grasp? Well, first up, he wants us to grasp the reality of the resurrection. Now, for there to be a resurrection, there has to be a death. And Mark makes that very clear that Jesus really did die. So back in chapter 15 and verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body. And Pilate learns from the centurion, who has just watched Jesus die, that he really is dead. And so he gives the corpse to Joseph. So both Jews and Romans verify that Jesus is dead before he's put into the tomb and the stone is rolled across the entrance. And watching it all are these women. They're the eyewitnesses throughout the story. They watch him die. They watch him being buried. And then they witness to the empty tomb. And they're named Mary Magdalene, Mary, Salome. They're named to honor them for their devotion to Jesus, but more than that, that they're eyewitnesses. You could have talked to them and checked out their story. It was those women, and they were there. Mark's recording history, not composing legend. And like historians of his day, he drew on the oral testimony of living eyewitnesses. There weren't many written documents to draw on, but you spoke to people who were there, and that's what he does. And what's more striking is that women at that time were viewed as unreliable witnesses. Like if you wanted someone You wanted people to believe this incredible story of a man rising from the dead. You didn't put it on the lips of women. Celsus, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century AD, was really hostile to Christianity. And one of the arguments he felt was strongest against it was that Christianity couldn't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection was based on the testimony of women. And he said, we all know women are hysterical. And many of his readers agreed. For them, it was a major problem. Back then, women were marginalized, and their testimony had no credibility. And yet, here is Mark putting their testimony right at the center of his account. Why does he emphasize them three times? Because they really were there, and they saw it. Now, you might think, well, I hear that. But people back then, they all believed in miracles. Like, they didn't have the scientific knowledge and the scientific processes that we have today. Strange thing happened. And they explained it by the supernatural. God did it. But we know better today. We know that there are no miracles. They don't happen, and neither did this one. But these women, were very modern women. They weren't expecting a resurrection or either. Back in, in Mark chapters 8 and 9 and 10, Jesus has accurately predicted his death. And each time he said, and after three days, I will rise again. And Jesus' male disciples heard him say that. And here we are on the third day, and where are they? Gone. They weren't expecting him to rise again. Like, you would have thought that maybe one or two of them would have said, You know, he talked about this rising again thing. Why don't we go and check it out? You know, if we go early, no one will see us. Don't tell the others in case they think we're right idiots. No, it doesn't even cross their minds and these women go out on Saturday night to the spice market, and they stock up, and they turn up on Sunday morning to anoint the the body because they're expecting a decaying corpse. In their grief, they hadn't thought about how they will roll the stone away. Well, if Jesus' followers aren't expecting a resurrection, then neither was anyone else. For the Greeks our physical bodies were a prison for our souls. And when someone died, their soul was released, and they left their body behind. They didn't want to return to it. The last thing they wanted was a physical resurrection. And as for the Jews, well, some believed in a future general resurrection at the very end of history, when the world would be transformed, and the wicked judged, and the righteous saved. And they had no concept of one person rising from the dead before then. And so, for different reasons, ancient and modern people, no one is expecting a resurrection. And yet, verse 6, you're looking for Jesus in Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him here's the reality of the resurrection. And it's a challenge to modern faith. That if you believe that there is no God, that this world is all there is, that the laws of science must always hold true, that Jesus was a historical figure, perhaps simply a significant spiritual leader, then a resurrection isn't likely. But if there is a God who rules the world, and the laws of science describe the consistent ways he sustains it, and if Jesus of Nazarene is who he claimed to be, God, and that what he predicted about himself happens, then the end of Mark's gospel isn't strange at all. In fact, it fits the evidence well. Will you let it challenge Your preconceived ideas? What might be stopping you from believing Mark's story? But the resurrection is more than simply a challenge to us, it's a comfort for us. Because Mark also wants us to grasp the restoration through the resurrection. Listen again to verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Like, what a message to pass on. Jesus wants to see his disciples again. Like, if that had been us, I am pretty sure we would not want to have done that. Like, they were a bunch of cowards. When the soldiers came to get Jesus, they deserted. They were useless. They were good for nothing. Jesus would be better off leaving them behind. Or if he was going to meet up with them, he has every right to be angry with them and to tell them off. Like the women should be telling the disciples they had better be groveling and apologetic whenever they see him. And yet that's not the message. Instead, it's a message of grace And forgiveness and restoration, Galilee will mark a new start for the disciples and for Peter. Like, why does the angel say, and Peter? Like, those two words are unnecessary because Peter is one of the disciples. And yet, those two words are probably the most eloquent words in Mark's gospel. The angel singles out this Peter, the one who denied the Lord Jesus. You know, even if all fall away, I will never disown you. And yet, spectacularly, tragically, a few hours later, that is exactly what he did. This Peter, who was imprisoned in his sin and guilt and shame with no way out. He could have and should have been left behind by Jesus. But those two words tell us that failure is not the last word, that there is forgiveness from Jesus. That Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, including Peter. His death has set him free. And his resurrection is the proof that the price of Peter's denial has been paid for. As some of you know, every Saturday morning, my daughter and I go shopping in Aldi. We do our weekly shopping. And we, we've done it so often now, we know exactly what to do. We have it all worked out. So we try to arrive around 9 o'clock in the morning. That way, we avoid the queues. And we know the route to take throughout the store. And we know where all of the things that we want are. And we bring with us two of those big carrier bags. And when it comes to the checkout, we put the heavy items on first so that they go into the bags. And then we put the the more delicate stuff on top after that. And we always keep up with the staff, with the the person behind the till. It is a competition. Um, We win. Um, And after we've paid, we're always asked a question. Do you want a receipt? And the answer is, Yes. You always answer yes. Because you want proof that you have paid for your purchases so that if security tackle you on the way out, you can prove, listen, I have paid. They're all here. And the death of Jesus is proof of payment that on the cross, Jesus bore our sins and took our punishment of death. And the proof that God's justice is satisfied is that Jesus came out of the tomb alive. It's as if Jesus entered that prison of Peter's sin and guilt and shame, and he broke open the door, and he marched out. Here is restoration through the resurrection. And Peter... Those words offer hope to us tonight. Add to them another two words Your name, and Glenn, and Sophie, and Lorato, and Lorraine. You may have failed Jesus in big ways, in small ways, in the same ways. You may be imprisoned in your sin and guilt and shame. But Jesus had words of grace for Peter, and he does for you. He died for deniers. He reconciles rebels. He forgives failures. Our salvation is not something that we have achieved. It is something that we receive. Jesus has paid it all, and the resurrection is proof of that and it restores us. Even Peter wasn't beyond forgiveness, and neither are you. And then finally, Mark wants us to grasp the response to the resurrection. The angel told those women, but go, Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Well, actually, the last words of the disciples in Mark's gospel were the words of Peter when he swore, I don't know this man you're talking about. And yet, here's that man who Peter denied and who the disciples deserted, saying he is going ahead and he wants them to follow him. And they will see him, not just physically but they will grasp who he really is and he wants them to know him and he wants to know them and jesus rose from the dead that first easter and he has gone ahead of us through galilee to heaven and one day we will see him just as he has told us either we will die or he will return but we will see him and he calls us today to follow him to live out and to speak out the grace and the restoration that he offers. And yet look how these women responded. Verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, we're not surprised that they were afraid. In fact, we'd be suspicious if they weren't afraid. Like, they've just seen an angel and an empty tomb. Like, imagine someone you loved and who's dead came back to life and met you. Like, how would you react? Like, if it was my granddad, William Nesbitt, like, if I went and visited my parents and there he was sitting on the sofa in the kitchen, his bald head, his left hand trembling from an accident that he had as a young man, and he said hello, well I don't think he'd say it quite like that, it would be in a Northern Irish accent that you probably couldn't understand, I tell you, I think I might be afraid and flee. And yet, there's unbelief mixed in with this fear. There's a right fear of Jesus, of his awesome power and authority, but there's a fear that runs away from him, that keeps quiet about him, that doesn't believe him, and That's what Mark leaves us with. And maybe he ends his gospel this way, because he knew what his readers were like, like these women. And aren't there times when we're like them as well? Aren't we disciples who are trembling and are bewildered, who keep quiet and run, who want to believe but doubt? Much of our discipleship isn't victorious. It's not the triumphalism of verses 17 and 18 in italics, where believers cast out demons and they speak new tongues and they pick up snakes and they drink poison unharmed. Like we praise God for his power. We want his kingdom to come. But at home and at work, in the lab and in the library, in the gym and the coffee shop, in school and on the bus, it is less glamorous than that. We're slow to speak of Jesus. We're afraid of what others might think. We're unsure how to navigate life. And yet, while we may identify with these women, Mark doesn't want us to be satisfied with them. He ends his gospel abruptly to provoke a response from us. He is risen. He is not here. Jesus has gone ahead, will we obediently follow him? Will you speak of him? Will you risk all for him? Because of the resurrection, this is not the end of the story. We can respond in a different way to these women. So let's deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Let's keep the hope of glory always in view, the sure hope of resurrection, the certainty of seeing Jesus one day. Hallelujah! Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Let's take a moment to reflect on God's Word, on how this story ends, on our response to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then I'll lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that by your great power you have raised the Lord Jesus from the dead. Thank you for what that angel said, that it is true, he has risen, he is not here. He has gone ahead of us. Thank you that this is not, it may be the end of Mark's story, it's not the end of our story, that our sin and failure is not the last word. Your grace, your restoration are. Thank you, Lord, that in all of our trembling and confusion and fear and silence, Lord, that you, that you do strengthen us, you do challenge us, you do call us, to live lives which show that resurrection power and to speak of it. So we pray, Lord, that in this week that lies ahead, you would keep that resurrection in front of us, that we would know the power of it in our lives, that we would live to praise you and to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.